This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. So, what is on the examination table today? Well, we're going old school again, and we are talking Universal Monsters. That's right. We are going back to uh, the 30s and are going to be looking at 1931's Dracula and 1931's Frankenstein. And I'm really excited to uh, chat about these films because I haven't seen these films in some time. Uh, It's certainly been at least 15, 20 years since I've seen the originals, and uh, when I was thinking about uh, films that I wanted to talk about on this podcast, what seems like eons ago, when we started, these were honestly two of the first ones that came to mind. And so I'm really excited to have the conversation and talk about how uh, kind of foundational these films are as well. So with that said, let's get right into it and let's start the discussion with 1931's Dracula. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? What's he done to you today? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a magnet in his arm, and he made me drink. So let's get started and let's get into that plot synopsis for Dracula. Renfield is a solicitor traveling to Count Dracula's castle in Transylvania on a business matter. The local village people fear that vampires inhabit the castle and warn Renfield not to go there. Renfield refuses to stay at the inn and asks his carriage driver to take him to Borjo Pass. Renfield is driven to the castle by Dracula's coach with Dracula disguised as the driver. En route, Renfield sticks his head out the window to ask the driver to slow down, but sees the driver has disappeared. A bat leads the horses. Renfield enters the castle, welcomed by the charming but eccentric Count, who, unbeknownst to Renfield, is a vampire. 
They discuss Dracula's intention to leave Carfax Abbey in London, where he intends to travel the next day. Dracula hypnotizes Renfield into opening a window. Renfield faints as a bat appears, and Dracula's three wives close in on him. Dracula waves him away, then attacks Renfield himself. Aboard the Schooner Vesta, Renfield is a raging lunatic slave to Dracula, who hides in a coffin and feeds on the ship's crew. When the ship reaches England, Renfield is discovered to be the only living person. Renfield is sent to Seward's Sanatorium, adjoining Carfax Abbey. At a London theater, Dracula meets Seward. Seward introduces his daughter Mina, her fiancé John Harker, and the family friend Lucy Weston. Lucy is fascinated by Count Dracula. That night, Dracula enters her room and feasts on her blood while she sleeps. Lucy dies the next day after a string of transfusions. Renfield is obsessed with eating flies and spiders. Professor Van Helsing analyzes Renfield's blood and discovers his obsession. He starts talking about vampires, and that afternoon Renfield begs Seward to send him away, claiming his nightly cries may disturb Mina's dreams. When Dracula calls Renfield with a wolf howling, Renfield is disturbed by Van Helsing showing him wolfsbane, which Van Helsing says is used for protection from vampires. Dracula visits Mina asleep in her bedroom and bites her. The next evening, Dracula enters for a visit, and Van Helsing and Harker notice that he does not have a reflection. When Van Helsing reveals this to Dracula, he smashes the mirror and leaves. Van Helsing deduces that Dracula is the vampire behind the recent tragedies. Mina leaves her room and runs to Dracula in the garden, where he attacks her. The maid finds her new finds her. Newspapers report that a woman in white is luring children from the park and biting them. Mina recognizes the lady as Lucy, risen as a vampire. Harker wants to take Mina to London for safety, but is convinced to leave Mina with Van Helsing. Van Helsing orders Nurse Briggs to take care of Mina when she sleeps and not to remove the wreath of wolfsbane from around her neck. Renfield escapes from his cell and listens to the men as they discuss vampires. Before his attendant takes Renfield back to his cell, Renfield relates to them how Dracula convinced Renfield to allow him to enter the sanatorium by promising him thousands of rats with blood and life in them. Dracula enters the Seaward parlor and talks with Van Helsing. Dracula states that Mina now belongs to him and warns Van Helsing to return to his home country. Van Helsing swears to uh, excavate Carfax Abbey and destroy Dracula. Dracula attempts to hypnotize Van Helsing, but the latter's resolve proves stronger. As Dracula lunges at Van Helsing, he withdraws a crucifix from his coat, forcing Dracula to retreat. Harker visits Mina on a terrace, and she speaks of how much she loves nights and fogs. A bat flies above them and squeaks to Mina. She then attacks Harker, but Van Helsing and Seward save him. Mina confesses what Dracula has done to her and tells Harker their love is finished. Dracula hypnotizes Briggs into removing the wolfsbane from Mina's neck and opening the windows. Van Helsing and Harker see Renfield heading for Carfax Abbey. They see Dracula with Mina in the abbey. When Harker shouts to Mina, Dracula thinks Renfield has led them there and kills him. Dracula is hunted uh, by Van Helsing and Harker, who know that Dracula is forced to sleep in his coffin during daylight, and the sun is rising. Van Helsing prepares a wooden stake while Harker searches for Mina. Van Helsing impales Dracula through the heart, killing him, and Mina returns to normal. So that is our plot synopsis, uh, but let's talk a little bit about the film. So Dracula was directed by Todd Browning and came out in 1931, as I mentioned uh, previously. And this was three years before uh, Todd Browning had released Freaks. 
This was the second film adaptation of Bram Stoker's 1897 novel. The first being uh, the silent film Nosferatu that came out in 1922. But this was the first that was authorized and the first was sound. So when Nosferatu came out, uh, Bram Stoker's widow actually sued for copyright infringement. Uh, But uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this film uh, in particular and and Frankenstein as well is that we may not think of this story as having a connection to disability, but uh, at its core, Dracula is a contagion horror film where vampirism is an infection that is transmitted via intimate contact. You know, the biting of the neck. And I want to examine this by talking not only about our titular Dracula, but kind of Mina and her journey. Because she's really, I would say that her and um, Van Helsing and I guess Dracula all kind of share a spotlight. It's kind of an ensemble piece, I mean, but you're also... Uh, up against Bela Lugosi's iconic performance. So I think, you know, that kind of steals a little bit of the shine from the others. But it really is more of an ensemble, um, at least my my take. Um, but I do want to get a little bit into some historical context um, before we really get into Mina and Dracula. So Stoker's novel came out during the Victorian era, era, and ideals about ideas about illness and disability were kind of shifting, and we were thinking more about the cause of illness being moving from uh, being strictly external or environmental to internal, and with disease being something that was you know internal, it would be something that we could transmit to others. So, you know, we're really talking about that contagion element uh, here. We're also at the tail end of the Industrial Revolution, and non-fatal injuries uh, were an increasing occupational hazard. Medical advancements were also beginning to make once fatal diseases something that could be treated. And I want to lay this out because it's... Uh, it applies to both Dracula and Frankenstein as these books were released around the same period and the films were obviously released in the first, in the same year. But I think it's very helpful, uh, particularly in talking about Dracula and having, you know, a little bit of that background. So let's talk about Mina. And Mina as a character, because it's, I think she's pretty fascinating. Uh, Unlike Renfield, she really alternates between her fear of her impending vampirism and embracing it to a degree. As manipulative as Dracula is, he also provides Mina with the most autonomy of the men around her. So that would be like her father her fiancé, and Van Helsing, uh, because they're all making decisions around her while, you know, Dracula, when he comes to visit her after he's uh, bitten her uh, the night before, you know, he asks as he's leaving, you know, may I come and visit you tomorrow and see how you're faring? Um, Because she, you know, shares about the nightmare. And... You know, it's giving her a little bit more of that autonomy while everyone else is kind of making all of these decisions and choices for her. Um, You know, this isn't saying this is relationship goals by any stretch, but it's interesting to ponder that the villain and really the source of her illness uh, doesn't render her necessarily weak. Um, and neither does her illness. Um, you know, she seems to enjoy flexing her burgeoning power of, suggest- of suggestion, especially during the scene where she and Harker and Van Helsing are on the terrace, and she is, you know, kind of in a 
seducing manner, trying to get Harker to get uh, Van Helsing's crucifix away from him because, you know, it's bad news for her. And uh, he succumbs to that, you know. Instead of, you know, saying, well, we need to do something about this, he completely listens to her. It's the only time when she's using this power that she's able to kind of pull rank on them. And it's really interesting to see. And, you know, one of the things about that scene that I noticed as well is that, you know, when we have seen Mina before um, this moment, you know, she's kind of, I don't want to say that she's average, but, you know, she's not very flashy, um, you know, particularly in comparison to her friend Lucy. You know, she's a little bit more uh, kind of toned down, I guess. A little less glam. But in this scene, like, she's wearing a really striking dress. It seems a little bit out of the norm for her usual wear. Um, and that, you know, again, as we're thinking about all of the lore and elements that we associate with vampires and as people are turning, this kind of fits, you know, she's getting a little fancy. She's tapping into that part of her that, you know, maybe she hasn't been able to flex. So I find that all pretty pretty interesting to think about you know she's not just a damsel in distress she's really you know kind of part of the action uh so i i really like that about her character now i want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the titular count dracula and one thing that stood out to me in this viewing was the religious components and how Dracula is really the, you know, kind of an embodiment of evil. You know, the weapons against Dracula aren't guns and things of that nature. It's religious iconography. And, you know, as someone that grew up with a parent that was extremely religious that was something that I really struggled with because it, you know, my illness was an extension of sin. And, you know, I was born with my disability because, um, you know, I had been a product of sin. So there, there's that really interesting element that Dracula himself and his, I guess, affliction is all part of sin. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, a couple of times about the contagion horn aspect and how he's that source. So, you know, it's him getting up close and personal that allows this disease to spread, the disease of vampirism. And, you know, we talked a little bit about that in the sex and disability uh, episode, but one thing that is very unique to Dracula, and I think unique in a lot of iterations, I mean, A, the mechanisms of how it's spread, I think remains fairly much the same across the board when we're looking at all the other adaptations of this story and of vampire stories. But one of the cool things about these stories is that, you know, yeah, Dracula is eccentric, as the plot synopsis states. But, you know, he's a little bit seductive. He's a little bit sexy. He's going to draw you in. He needs you to want to kind of get up close and personal. And this film, I think in really early versions of the Dracula story, it's a little less, um, I think, pronounced. But we see that in a lot of other iterations where, you know, the vampires are sexy as fuck. And that's because they need to 
you know, get up close with you. They need to be intimate with you um, in order to feed. That's part of it. Um, feeding is often looked at as kind of a sexual uh, kind of act. And there's still that element here, but this is the 30s. And so it's obviously going to come across a little bit different. But, you know, he's still biting necks. Although we never really see the biting happen. That's something that's also really cool in this uh, film as well is that, you know, we never really see the bite of the neck. We never see the fangs, but it's all so kind of there in our minds because we've seen it so much now. Um, but I think that Bella Lugosi's performance really sells that uh, component too because, yeah, he's a little bit, you know, he's a little bit different, but he's still got some swagger to him. Um, you know, and I think going back to, the, you know, what we have come to identify as this vampire lore, we also have, um, you know, just his general look, which is pretty iconic with, you know, being extremely pale, having, you know, dark hair and dark features to really contrast that. And just having this kind of brooding uh, nature to him. So it's all kind of there. He really did, I think, set, uh, I think, a standard with, I think, at least some of the core elements of this character that we've continued to see, you know, uh, almost a hundred years later. And I think that's pretty, I think that really says something about it. I think it says something about the character in and of itself, but also the, his performance. So moving away from Dracula as the representation of evil through his illness and all of that, I wanted to, uh, the last thing I kind of wanted to hit on with this character, uh, when he is meeting the group at the opera and he and Lucy are having this back and forth. She's, I think, reciting a toast where, you know, it's about toasting the dead. She has kind of this morbid uh, kind of vibe to her that I think uh, really connects with Dracula. And he has this quote um, that really stood out to me. And it is, to die, to be really dead, that must be glorious. And it stuck out to me on this viewing because it's something that we've talked a little bit about in other episodes, which is, you know, is it better to be dead or to live with a chronic condition, a disability, um, and the fact that this character that seems to, you know, he's kind of got everything going for him. He's got cash. He's immortal. He's got, he's got like a, a whole bunch of wives and ladies lining up for him. So, you know, there's still that twinge of, I'm not happy about the fact that I have to go and drink blood and kill uh to sustain life i'm not happy that i have to turn people in order to sustain um so it's it's something that really stood out to me because you know he has such this uh i don't want to say it's confidence but like he's comfortable with himself and that quote just really stood out to me i'm like oh that's that's different for you, Count Dracula, and that's kind of sad, and let's think about that. Yeah, I think that's where I will wrap it up with Dracula. Y'all, I'm so glad I put this on the schedule for the podcast, because I don't know if I would have revisited these films, and Dracula in particular, without that encouragement. <laughs> And I have a lot of fun with it. Um, it, 
you know, I definitely think I'm going to go back and watch the other uh, Universal monster films that I have because I I remember liking them as a kid. I don't know why they just never really kind of stuck to my ribs, so to speak. But I'm excited to kind of go back and see if you know they they hit harder for some reason this time around because I really liked. Uh, Dracula a lot more than I was anticipating. I thought it would maybe be a bit slow or um, things like that, but I, it's a quick, quick little film uh, under an hour and a half, so if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it in a while, go back and see if, you know, listening to this and going back and looking at it now, if, you know, your thoughts and feelings have changed. Um, but yeah, that will do it for Dracula. But now, let's switch gears and let's talk about Frankenstein. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! Frankenstein begins with Edward Van Sloan stepping from behind a curtain to break the fourth wall and deliver a brief caution to the audience. How do you do? Mr. Carlamel feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to, uh, well, we warned you. And then we are in a village of the Bavarian Alps, and Henry Frankenstein and his assistant Fritz, a hunchback, piece together a human body. Some of the parts are from freshly buried bodies, and some from the bodies of recently hanged criminals. In a laboratory he built inside a watchtower, Henry desires to create a human, giving the body life through electrical devices. He still needs a brain for his creation. At a nearby school, Henry's former teacher, Dr. Waldman, shows his class the brain of an average human being and the corrupted brain of a criminal for comparison. Henry sends Fritz to steal the healthy brain from Waldman's class. Fritz accidentally damages it and so brings Henry the corrupt brain. Henry's fiancée, Elizabeth, speaks with their friend Victor about the scientist's peculiar actions and his seclusion. Elizabeth and Victor ask Waldman to, for help for understanding uh, Henry's behavior, and Waldman reveals he is aware of Henry's wish to create life. Concerned for Henry, they arrive at the lab just as he makes his final preparations, the lifeless body of an, on an operating table. 
As a storm rages, Henry invites Elizabeth and the others to watch. Henry and Fritz raise the operating table toward the opening at the top of the tower. The creature and Henry's equipment are exposed to the lightning storm and empowered, bringing the creature to life. Frankenstein's monster, despite the grotesque form, seems to be an innocent, childlike creation. Henry welcomes it into his laboratory and asks it to sit, which it does. He opens up the roof, causing the monster to reach out towards the sunlight. Fritz enters with a flaming torch, which frightens the monster. Its fright is mistaken by Henry and Waldman for an attempt to attack them, and it is chained in the dungeon, where Fritz antagonizes it with a torch. Hearing, Frit hearing Fritz shriek in the dungeon, Henry and Waldman run down, finding the monster has strangled and hanged Fritz. The monster lunges at the two, but they lock the monster inside. Realizing the monster must be destroyed, Henry prepares an injection of a powerful drug. The two conspire to release the monster and inject it as it attacks. When the door is unlocked and the monster lunges at Henry as Waldman injects the drug into the monster's back, the monster falls to the floor unconscious. Henry collapses from exhaustion and Elizabeth and Henry's father take him home. Henry's worried about the monster, but Waldman reassures him that he will destroy it. While Henry is at home, recovered and preparing for his wedding, Waldman examines the monster. As he prepares to vivisect it, the monster strangles him. It escapes from the tower and wanders through the landscape, encountering a farmer's young daughter, Maria. She asks him to play a game with her in which they toss flowers onto a lake. The monster enjoys the game, but when they run out of flowers, he throws Maria into the lake, where she disappears beneath the surface. The monster runs away. With preparations for the wedding completed, Henry is happy with Elizabeth. They are to marry as soon as Waldman arrives. Victor rushes in, saying that Waldman has been found strangled. Henry suspects the monster. The monster enters Elizabeth's room, causing her to scream. When the searchers arrive, they find Elizabeth unconscious. The monster has escaped. Maria's father arrives, carrying his drowned daughter's body. He says she was murdered, and the villagers form a search party to capture the monster. During the search, Henry is attacked by the monster. The monster knocks Henry unconscious and carries him to an old mill. The peasants hear his cries and find the monster as he climbs to the top, dragging Henry with him. The monster hurls the scientist to the ground. His fall is broken by the veins of the windmill, saving his life. Some of the villagers bring him home, while the rest of the mob set the windmill ablaze with the monster trapped inside. At Castle Frankenstein, Henry's father celebrates the wedding of his recovered son with a toast to a future grandchild. So, Frankenstein is based off of Mary Shelley's novel of the same name that was published in 1818. And I think she was 20 when it was published. Um, so she was pretty young. And I remember reading this in high school and really liking it. I remember watching this film uh, when I was young and was kind of going through some of the Universal monster movies and really liking this as well. I think this was probably my favorite. So I was really excited to go back and watch this. And y'all, this movie is a fucking weeper. It is extremely sad and very tragic. And I got really emotional during it. Um, I was really surprised. There's some really gorgeous shots as well, um, which I'll talk about as I go here. But one of the things that I want to focus on for this part of the conversation is I really just felt that this was the prototype for Jason Voorhees. There's so much common ground between this film and Frankenstein and the Friday the 13th 
film and Jason. And so I kind of want to dig into this because I found it, you know, kind of interesting and something that was really hard for me to shake off as I was watching. Um, so we start with the parental figures. So in Frankenstein, it's Dr. Frankenstein, it's Henry. You know, he is the creator of the monster. And after the monster is created, he is, you know, the one that has to tend to the monster, or at least attempt to. And, you know, with Friday the 13th, you have Jason. Pamela is uh, the mom. And so you have that established relationship. Let's take it one more step further with the parental units they're both the villains um frankenstein is a villain because he's a fucking awful parent uh by and large he has no concept of how to help the monster acclimate uh to being alive and you know, as you do with a child, to raise them, to prepare them. By all accounts, Pamela Voorhees is a good parent. Um, We don't really see any of the parenting necessarily in action uh, because Jason is dead or presumed dead in the first film. So we don't see that. But we have no reason to believe that she wasn't uh, a good parent while Jason was alive as a child. I assume that her being at the camp as a cook and Jason being at the camp was probably just so that she could also keep an eye on him as a kiddo with a you know significant healthcare need, someone with an intellectual or developmental disability. And you know, her villainous turn comes when she decides to take to seek vengeance when he dies. So both villains, different approaches. And that's, I would say, probably the most significant uh, difference there. But then when we talk about the monster and Jason, we really see almost 100% parallels. Both are kind of childlike and innocent in their makeup. Now, you're probably like, the fuck are you saying, Jason, childlike and innocent? I'll get there. Um, obviously, with the monster very childlike very innocent very new to the world and that is uh very clear when dr frankenstein is kind of getting him to sit and getting him to walk around and he's just kind of figuring out the space and what everything is he wants to be in the sun, but he's being kind of shuttered off into darkness. And uh, as the plot synopsis hits on, um, Fritz, the assistant that's helping Dr. Frankenstein, is 100% asshole and completely antagonizes the monster uh, with the torches, knows that he is terrified of this and still continues to. Um, you know, just torment him. And it's honestly really hard to watch because he's so frightened and so scared and just wants to get away. And you feel really, really bad for him. And, you know, all I can say is that Fritz fucked around and found out because, yeah, he he was literally playing with fire. There's a really strong correlation between both uh, Jason and the monster to a character with an intellectual or developmental disability. And one of the kind of ways is presented in Frankenstein is the use of the bad brain, which is a choice. Um, but, you know, it's indicating that there's something damaged about that brain and it's not going to function properly, which, you know, an intellectual or developmental disability, you can make that connection. Um, as I've talked about on other episodes, you know, with Jason, he's kind of in that same realm. 
he is someone that we learn through, I think, the full series in bits and pieces that he was a child with, you know, a pretty significant uh, intellectual or developmental disability and probably why he was at the camp to begin with so that his mom could keep an eye on him. So it's a really strong correlation. It was really hard for me to shake off there. You've got, you know, the creators of these two beings, of Jason and the monster, as being the real villains and kind of a number of different circumstances really then shifting that over to them. Another, I think, difference is obviously with Jason, you're not really feeling sympathy for him past a certain point. Like, you feel bad for the circumstances that he's found himself in and what have you, but he makes a series of different choices as he's now on his own. And the monster doesn't really have that ability. You know, he is essentially a He's essentially a child. He was just created. He doesn't have all of the skills and things that he needs to be able to continue to grow. And it's really overwhelming and you just feel so much sympathy for him. Now, one of the, I think, most shocking moments of the film is the scene with Maria when they are at the lake. He comes across her um, after her father has left uh, to go into town. And she is throwing, uh, she's picking some flowers there uh, by the lake. And he comes up and joins her. And she doesn't really think twice about it and starts picking flowers with him, gives him some. She picks some more. And then she says, look, I can make them float. And she starts throwing the flowers onto the lake. And the monster is completely beside himself with joy. It's like, this is pretty cool. Digging this. Good times. I'm out in the sun. I'm chilling with some other people. This is good. And then when he runs out of flowers, he becomes a little disoriented and a little like, okay, well now what? And then tosses Maria in. What makes this scene really jarring is that it's for a second, half a second, it kind of comes off as funny. You know, this big lumbering character picking up this little girl and tossing her into the lake like it's no thing. There's that half a second where you're like, okay, this is funny. And then you're like, oh no, it's definitely not because she's not, she's not floating. She's not getting back out. And about that time that that realization hits you, it hits the monster and he runs off because he doesn't know what to do. And it's so just, it's really beautifully shot, really interesting compositions in the scene with uh, cutting back and forth between them and then, you know, him exiting after he's thrown her in the lake. And the performance of Karloff's is so outstanding because you, in these moments, understand and can feel what he is feeling. The heaviness, the uncertainty, the frightened kind of torment of, I don't know what's going on and what, what do I do next? And it's really, really good and really heartbreaking. And then uh, you get, I think it's the scene after, I think it's a couple of scenes after where you get her father carrying her dead body through the streets, uh, like through a party. There's this big party um, and he's basically carrying her body right through the middle of it to go and, you know, get uh, justice for what has happened. And you are following him for a pretty long time. It You're going through a lot 
of people in this crowd. It's pretty intense and maybe one of my favorite sequences in the film just because it's so, you know, it just hits really well with the scene at the lake. It really does hit, like, pack that emotional punch. And I, yeah, I was really devastated. And this really marks the monster as falling into that gentle giant trope of sorts where it's someone with an intellectual or developmental disability. They're usually, you know, larger characters that do things not realizing their own strength, not realizing the impact or what may happen by, you know, acting out a certain way. And, you know, I've talked about how both Jason and Leatherface fall into that, but Frankenstein, I think, really fits that to a T. And again, I think is kind of a prototype in a lot of ways for that. So it's a really great performance. Now, I do want to close up the conversation on Frankenstein by talking about the other disabled character in this tale, and that is Fritz, uh, Dr. Frankenstein's hunchback assistant. Now, when we first meet him and Dr. Frankenstein, they're at the graveyard to collect bodies. And in doing that and going and getting the brain, he's just kind of the right hand uh, for Dr. Frankenstein. There's, I don't want to say he's innocuous, but he's just there as a helper, which is his role. But the minute that the creature, the monster is brought to life, he kind of flips a switch and is really an antagonistic asshole to the monster. Um, you know, I mentioned the fire piece in the synopsis. You know, multiple times he's just waving these flaming torches in the monster's face, knowing that he is terrified. He's literally like kind of crawling back into corners because he's so frightened. And I have to admit, I didn't really feel that much when you get that shot of him hanging because he was just kind of brutal to him. And I, it's an interesting choice because I would love to know like what is his motive is it because he feels now there's someone else around and maybe his role or his position as henry's helper is going to be jeopardized in some way i don't know um it's it is a quandary but it's you know kind of a you know, straightforward thing until that moment where literally uh, lightning strikes and you see him just kind of morph into a completely different character and yeah, kind of good riddance to him. But, you know, I, I think it is uh, an interesting juxtaposition to the monster because there's there's no idea of what's provoking um, Fritz to be so awful to the monster where we know when the monster acts out we know why we get a sense of it is because he's being kind of bullied and is scared so it's I don't know it the character was kind of a mess for me but a mess in an interesting way I should say so I really, 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 really liked uh, watching this one again. I was really kind of blown away with how emotional I got during some of the scenes. So again, if you haven't watched this in a while, if you haven't watched it ever, do go and check it out because it's it's really good. I definitely have to say... I like this one even more than Dracula. And I like Dracula a lot, but Frankenstein is my shit. 
and I'm so glad I got to revisit it and kind of share some thoughts with y'all. So on that note, I think it is time to say goodbye. So thank you as always for listening. I hope that talking through these films has, you know, perhaps inspired you to go and watch them after a long time like I have. Uh, And maybe look at some of these characters a little bit differently. Look at some of these uh, motives and these actions a little bit differently in, in how they speak to the disability experience. If you want to reach out and say hi or anything else, I can be found on Twitter at Nicole in DC. And you can shoot me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. This podcast is a very proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. So if you haven't already, make sure you are subscribed to the Anatomy of a Scream feed um, wherever you listen to your podcast. There are new shows being added uh, pretty regularly, and I think you are going to dig them. So make sure you are on that. Also, if you do like what you've been listening to, which of course you have, then please leave a review, a five-star review, because it really does help other people find the feed and find these shows. So with all of that said, thank you so much as always for listening and until next time. Squad.